We've been preaching on a mini-series for Christmas that I've entitled this, For the Glory of God and the Good of Others. Why did Jesus come to earth? For the glory of God and the good of others. Why would he leave heaven? Why would he leave the right hand of God and come to this planet and live here? Why would, why would he do that? For the glory of God and the good of others. What was in it for him? The glory of God and the good of others. And this is the whole principle in getting what the Christian life is all about. It's not about what we get, but what we do for God and for others. That's the whole point of Christianity. If your Christianity revolves around what you get out of it, you're selfish. If it revolves around what you can do for others and how God can get glory in what you do for others, what are the odds God's going to bless it? Because that's exactly what he's called us to do. And Jesus leaves us no uncertain terms of this in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. In Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, last week I kind of blew over the controversy a little bit, but today I want to get into the controversy a little bit because if you were to go up to a Jew and ask a Jew who Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 is written about, do you know what they would tell you? Israel. They would not tell you it's a passage about Jesus Christ. And they have some good arguments on the surface for why that is, but they don't hold up in Scripture. And this is why all of Scripture matters, because today I'm going to take Scripture and we're going to show you from the Old Testament and the New Testament that it is beyond contestation today who the servant is. The servant is none other than Jesus Christ. It can't be anybody else. It can't be Israel. It can't be the church. It can't be some character in the Old Testament. It has to be Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus, the servant, and we're going to look at his identity. So we're going to throw Isaiah 53. We're going to look at just a couple verses this morning, verses 4 through 6. That's our whole passage this morning. And we're going to look at how Jesus is the servant that the Bible talks about how it has to be Jesus Christ and nobody else. Let's read these passages together, shall we? It's on the screen here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Does that mean yours? Your iniquity has been laid on Israel? Your iniquity has been laid on the Jews? No, your iniquity is laid on the servant. So the question is, who's the servant? Who's the servant that we just talked about? Who is the one who is the shepherd that brings the sheep back to pasture? Now, if we didn't have the New Testament, th th this could be a little tricky. But praise the Lord, we have the whole counsel of God today, right? 
the Bible is the sole authority of faith and practice, then we need to know what the Bible says when it comes to our faith and our practice. So this morning, Christians and Jews disagree on the identity of the servant. If you were to go to Israel today and you were to take Isaiah 52 and 53, read it to a Jew, and you said that that was about Jesus, they'd laugh at you. They'd laugh at you. But what don't the Jews accept? The New Testament. So they're missing part of the council that reveals who the servant is. And you've heard me say this before. When you study the Bible, for every Old Testament story, there's a New Testament truth. And for every New Testament truth, there's an Old Testament story that validates it. Scripture always validates itself. It always agrees. So how do we figure out the disagreement among these? Well, let me give you the arguments. Christians believe the servant is Jesus, but the Jews believe that the servant is Israel. Okay? Here's the arguments for Jesus not being the servant. This is Israel's argument, or the Jews' argument. Number one, the servant is despised and rejected, but Jesus was never popular. Where, when was Jesus popular? He got a crowd of 5,000 here, 4,000 there, maybe 15,000, 10,000, if you count the women and children in the numbers. But when was Jesus really ever popular? Was Israel popular? Are they known around the world? Are they recognized? So this is Israel's argument. Number two, the servant shall see his offspring in verse 10. What offspring did Jesus have? He was childless. He never married. So how could, how could this possibly be Jesus as the servant? Because Jesus had no offspring. Number three, the servant shall prolong his days. What age was Jesus killed? 33-ish, right? How is that prolonging your days? Is that considered a long lifetime even today? No. So their argument would be Jesus doesn't fulfill any of these things that Scripture says he would fulfill. But this is why Jesus was also misunderstood even in his own time period. The servant, look at verse 1 again of Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he's heard from us? So where did this come from? From God. Go back um, and look at the next phrase. And whom has the, what's the next phrase say? Arm of who? What is the arm of the Lord? If God is a spirit, what doesn't he have? Body parts, right? So this is an anthropomorphic uh, push on, on, on a spirit being that has no body. So what is the right arm of the Lord? Jesus Christ, right? Who sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus Christ. What is the right hand a symbol of? Power, authority. So he says here, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been what? Revealed. Now, when was Israel ever the arm of the Lord? <laughs> they never were. They were never called that. Um, and then notice what it says. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. 
Is Israel a beautiful place today? Is it the desire of the world today? Do they have resources that all the countries around them are jealous of? Yeah. So how does that apply to Israel? Is the real question. How is Israel not desirable, not noticeable, not significant when everything is opposite of that today? So there's a few things that were misunderstood here. He was misunderstood, number one, in his identity. He was misunderstood in his identity. He was despised. He was rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, verse 3 says, and from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Jews were expecting somebody like David, right? Somebody like Samson. Somebody like Solomon. They wanted somebody that was wise, somebody that was strong, or some mighty king that could beat anybody else. That's who they were looking for. What did they get? They got a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. They got somebody from Nazareth, and what good thing can come from, right? So his identity was misunderstood. So was his suffering. His suffering was misunderstood. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 4. Kind of reminds me of a couple of New Testament verses. Let me show you these. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24 says this. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek what? We still are, aren't we? But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and a joke or a folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So what does that tell us about the identity of Jesus? Well, some think it's foolish. Some think it's dumb. Some think it's a joke to follow Jesus. The Jews wanted a sign. The Greeks wanted wisdom. But what did Paul give them? Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And a stumbling block to the Jews. And a joke to the Gentiles. Mark, Mark says it this way in verse 15 and or chapter 15 and verse 32, he says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is talking about Caiaphas, the high priest, standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus and he says, If you're the Son of God, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. Come off that tree if that's who you are. Prove to everybody that you are God. But if you don't come off the cross, then what? You're not who you say you are. Man, just like, man. Why was Jesus on the cross? Why, why was Jesus born of a virgin? So he could die. So he could die on a cross for man's sin. So while he's dying on the cross for man's sin, what's man doing to the sacrifice? He's mocking it. By the way, it was our sin that put him on the tree. He's our substitute. You and I deserve that tree. Was Jesus punished by God? Sure he was. Look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. This is something a lot of people don't understand. Verse 10. You have it? Isaiah 53, 10. It says this. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush who? The servant. It was the will of God to crush the servant. Who killed Jesus? God did. Who gave his only son as a sacrifice for man's sin? God did. So many times I've heard, well, Jesus came down to, 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 he died for us. He didn't die for us. He died in our place. Yes. But he died for God. He died to be obedient to the Father. This is the whole essence of the Garden of Gethsemane episode. Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Your will. What was Jesus trying to get out of? It wasn't the cross. He knew the cross was the reason he came. What he was trying to get out of was for the first time in the existence of the Godhead, the Father and Son would have no communion. That's what he, was, that's what he didn't want. He didn't want to be separated from the Father. And what was going to cause a separation? My sin. Your sin. Our sin. It was our sin that put him on the tree. It was our sacrifice. Our substitute. He is our substitute. That's why we can take communion today. He is our substitute. It was his body, his blood that was shed as an innocent lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. So why did Jesus have to come in a manger? Because he had to be a king. So he had to be of the line of David, but he couldn't have man's sin. So you had to have what? A virgin born birth so that the sin of man wasn't passed on, but yet the kingly line of David would be passed on through Mary, thus making Jesus not just a prophet, not just a priest, but also making him what? King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why it matters. This is why he was bruised for our iniquities. This is why he was crushed for us. Look at verse 9. Back up at verse. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no, what? Deceit found in his mouth. What does deceit mean? There's no wrong. There's no lies. It was only righteousness that came out of his mouth. What does that mean? He was sinless. Now let me ask you a really clear, blatant question. Has Israel ever sinned? I mean, maybe once or twice, right? The whole Bible's full of Israel's rebellion against God, right? If you know to do good and you don't do it, it's called what? How many times did Israel know what to do and they didn't do it? Right? So this can't be Israel. This can't be a, a nationalistic thing. <clears throat> this has to be somebody. And that somebody has to be extraordinarily different than everybody else, yet extremely ordinary that people wouldn't notice them. Well, who was extremely ordinary as a man, but extremely unique as God in the flesh? Jesus Christ. So I present to you this morning that Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 52 is not just written about Israel. It's written about Jesus Christ. And if it's written about Jesus Christ, then there's some things about it that we need to preach and we need to proclaim. Because Isaiah 53 is often called the gospel of the Old Testament. 
So why preach the gospel to a bunch of Christians then? Well, it's really a simple thing. Number one, all of us are sinners. Every single one of us has committed sin. If you're saved, you're a sinner. If you're lost, you're a sinner. How do we know that? Romans 3.23 says what? For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. What is the object of man? To glorify God. So if we're going to glorify God for the glory of God and the good of what? Others, how are we going to glorify God if we're sinners? For all of sin and come short of what? The glory of God. So if we're going to glorify God, then there has to be somebody or someone that can step in and help us do that. The Bible says in verse 6 that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Man, do you see that in our world today? Do we see that in the church today? It's often said people are basically good. How many of you have heard that? Mankind is basically good, except when we're not and we're all killing each other. Except when we're leading everybody away from God. Man, is not ba- Man says we're basically good. What does God say? We're all sinners. None are good. None are righteous. Not even one. That's a pretty low bar. By the way, the cross makes no sense if we're not all sinners. If there was no sin in the world, why do you need a cross? If, if there's no sin, if, if man is basically good, then why have a cross why have jesus why have the things that we have the bible says all we like sheep how many have ever worked with sheep my friend brian had some sheep and there's a couple times he's out of town and i had to take care of those dumb animals there's a reason they call them dumb animals think about this what does a sheep really bring to the table defense wise nothing what do they bring companion wise the second you turn around, where's the sheep? Gone. They wander off. And if the sheep are all together in a corner of a pen, guess what they're all doing to each other? They bite each other. They agitate each other. They get bored. They chew on things. They chew holes and all kinds of stuff. doesn't matter what it's made out of. Wood. They chew on metal. They don't care. They'll eat anything you put in front of them. There's a reason Jesus used the word sheep. But what are, what are sheep good at? Following. They will follow. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. What do you know about a sheep that doesn't follow the shepherd? They don't know the shepherd. They don't know the voice of the shepherd. They're not following it. By the way, have you ever heard this? The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. How many sheep have tried that? You ever, know, ever watch a sheep standing in a perfectly green pasture and there's brown grass on the other side of the fence and where's the sheep trying to reach? The dead grass. You got the green grass right underneath you. Won't do it. We're all sinners. We've all messed up. But number two, Christ died in our place. This is the good news. Christ died in our place. God doesn't look at sin lightly. He must punish it. So what, how did he punish sin? Where did he punish it at? Where did he pulverize it at? Where did he destroy sin at? 
He destroyed it on Jesus Christ. This is why it went dark. This is why he was maimed beyond recognition as a human being. I think if we had to watch Jesus be crucified today, we wouldn't gut it. Our country couldn't take it. We, we wouldn't be able to watch what happened to him. Yeah, we see it in Hollywood and stuff, but Hollywood doesn't do it justice. The Bible says he literally did not look human when they were done with him. Could you imagine seeing tendons and meat hanging out of his back? Could you imagine looking in and seeing his lungs inflating and deflating because they ribboned his back so bad that you could actually see inside the, the cavity of his ribcage? This is what the Bible says happened. This is what Jesus endured for us. He, wasn't, he didn't just hang on a cross as some pretty guy. He suffered for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Matthew 20, verse 28. It's an interesting word there. The word for means anti. It means instead of or in place of. So this, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life in place of many. Instead of many. He took our place. John 10, 11 says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When the crowd saw him, Matthew 9, 36, when the crowd saw him, he was moved with compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 15, 3 through 7. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost till he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. So just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over the 99 righteous who need no repentance. How many of us have heard this verse for pastors? This verse has nothing to do with pastors. You know what it is? It's Jesus' promise that he will not, there will not be one person that he will not pursue for salvation. Salvation is for everyone. It's for all. Whosoever will may come. And there's more rejoicing in heaven when what happens? When one sinner repents, more than, well, if we had 99 people in the auditorium this morning and we were all living righteously, heaven would not rejoice as much as if one person got saved. So what should the church be busy about? Making parties in heaven or congratulating ourselves on holiness on earth? We need to be sharing the gospel. There's more joy in heaven when that happens than we have a great Sunday at church. Look at verse 4 again. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse 5. By the way, he's called the prince of what? He is our peace. He's the prince of peace. The mighty God, the everlasting Father. With his stripes we are healed, verse 5. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I don't have to be a great theologian to figure out. None of these characteristics fit Israel. But all of these characteristics fit somebody. Who is it? Jesus Christ. Our sin was laid on him like the sin of Israel was laid on the scapegoat. Now, if you know your Old Testament Leviticus here, this is going to become perfectly clear what Jesus Christ is saying. Look at Leviticus 16 and verses 20 through 22. And when he had made an end of the atoning of the holy place 
in the tent of the meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and you shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And what was this a picture of? As far as the east is from the west, so far have your iniquities been removed from you. This was a picture of the goat taking on the sin of Israel, being led out into the wilderness and let go and forgotten, just like the sins of mankind would be let go and forgotten through Jesus Christ. First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one says, "For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." First Peter chapter two, verses twenty-four and twenty-five, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been what? Where have we seen that phrase before? By his stripes, we would be what? Isn't that what Isaiah 53 says? So who are we talking about there in that verse? This is Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, this is Christ. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we have shepherd, we have sheep, and we have by his wounds, you are healed. Where have we see all three of those concepts in one chapter? Isaiah 53. Isaiah is the most quoted of all the Old Testament books in the Bible. Matter of fact, out of all the New Testament books, Isaiah is the one the New Testament references more than any other book. So the New Testament is trying to tell us something. Trying to tell us that Jesus was born for the purpose of dying. He was born as a servant for the purpose of dying. He was dying for the will of the Father. But it was beneficial for you and I. Jesus died for our sin and for our salvation. How should we respond to a substitutionary death of a Messiah that was promised to take away the sin of the world? How should we respond to that? Well, I think it's easy. We die to sin and we become alive unto righteousness through Jesus Christ. Or could we say it better this way? We do it for the glory of God and for the good of others. Why did Jesus die? For the glory of God and the good of others. Why was he put in a manger? For the glory of God and the good of others. Why did he live the life that he did? For the glory of God and the good of others. Why did he die the death he did? For the glory of God and the good of others. Why did he resurrect from the dead? Himself, for the glory of God and the good of. So why are you here today? Why are you on earth today? What is your purpose that God has for your life right now? Could it be so far-fetched that it might be for the glory of God and the good of others? For the glory of God and the good of others. Think about this. When you make those two things the things most important in this Christmas season, then what are you going to do for yourself? 
You're going to find ways to glorify God and to serve others, to benefit others. Jesus didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient in death, even the death of the... And why would he do that? For the glory of God and the good of others. Next week, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this passage because it gets a lot deeper yet. And Lord willing, by Christmas Day, we'll have the opportunity and we will understand beyond a shadow of a doubt what the Old Testament was screaming when it came to a Messiah, exactly who it was and what he would do and why he would do it and to what ends he would go to make sure that it happened. And to what end did Jesus go? He went to, the, he went to death. Something he should have never experienced as a member of the Godhead. Yet he did it for you and he did it for me. He did it in our place. But he really didn't do it for you and I. He did it for what? For the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it's quick, it's powerful. And Father, it's very simple to understand when we study it out. Father, help us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that need not to be ashamed, but able to rightly divide the word of truth. And Father, this morning we know that this passage of Scripture, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is not talking about Israel, it's talking about Jesus. And if Jesus is this servant, this servant is going to do some miraculous things, some intense things for the people in which he is serving. And Father, I pray that as we look at this deeper in the weeks and months ahead, or in the weeks ahead, in this month ahead of us, coming into the Christmas holiday, I pray, Father, that we would have a different view of Christmas, that we would have the view of Christmas that Jesus had when he left heaven to come to earth in the form of a baby, in a manger, in swaddling clothes, through a virgin, that he would be the good shepherd. He would be the king of kings. He would be the prince of peace. He would be the mighty God. He would be the everlasting father. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. And he would be the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And that, Father, all these things are true because of Isaiah 53 and 52. And that, Father, it was clearly prophesied in the Old Testament what your son would do for us. And, Father, help us not to miss the message in the story. Jesus did it to please the Father. He did it to glorify the Father. And he did it for the good of others. And, Father, the only thing you've asked us to do is to lay down our lives to follow you for the glory of God and for the good of others. So help us, Father, to share the gospel. Help us to share the truth of Christmas and help us to empty ourselves as Jesus did. Help us to be obedient to your will as Jesus was and help us to open our mouths and preach and proclaim the truth during this season for the good of others. In your name we pray.